And I, I realized as I prepared this week that most towns or areas or regions seem to have their claim to fame, right? It's what they're, they're known for. It's what the people who live there are most proud of. So if you're from the Dayton area, what would you say? You'd have to say something about the Wright brothers and the advent of human flight. You'd have to. The town where I grew up just up the road is called Fairborn. And initially, Fairborn was two different towns, Osborne and Fairfield. And after the great floods that came through in 1913, Osborne was in a floodplain. So what they did was lifted hundreds of, of buildings off their foundations and moved them miles south out of the floodplain. So homes and businesses and churches were all moved closer to what was in Fairfield to create the first and the one and only Fairborn in the world. So that's something that the people there know about, and they, it's kind of a point of pride for them. Maybe you're from Miamisburg, and you'd mention something about the Native American mound there. Maybe you're from Cedarville, and you'd mention Labor Day. Maybe you're from Yellow Springs, and you'd mention how kind of quirky and cool and countercultural it is. Maybe, um, I know I drive into Centerville a lot, and I'll often notice the sign, Centerville, Ohio, the largest collection of early stone buildings in Ohio. But I think we could go around, and everyone, wherever you're from, you'd have that one thing that you could kind of point to. It's that thing that you're, you're known for, or the region where you're from is known for. Naomi and I, before moving back to the Dayton area, lived for a while in a little town in Kentucky, and they were immensely proud about someone called Nancy Green. She was an activist, and she was a missionary, and um, she became kind of a folk hero in some way. She uh, uh, was a cook, and she ended up becoming the first real marketing superstar in the world. She did that when she went to the World's Fair in Chicago and sold 50,000 boxes of her original recipe pancake mix. She called herself Aunt Jemima. People there are incredibly proud of her and what she did and who she was, and certainly that she did all that in spite of adversity. That town is also the place where Hot Pockets are made, though they try to keep that as quiet as possible because Hot Pockets are terrible. Um, <laughs> But I think, again, we could go around the room and you could tell us something special about where you're from. Well, you see, in the year 356 in Ephesus, they had a great temple that was destroyed by a fire. And what soon replaced that temple was something much more grand and immense and magnificent than really anything the world had ever seen. It would become the biggest temple and the biggest shrine in the world. It would be four times the size of the Parthenon in Greece. It would be much larger in area than an American football field. It would have hundreds of gargantuan stone columns holding up an immeasurably heavy roof. We know it now as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the great temple of Artemis. And you see, this, for Ephesians, was... This was their thing. This is what they were known for. This is what they were proud of. This is what they told other people about. This is what other people flooded into the region to see and experience. And it was into this setting, it was into this city that Paul and early Christians rode. And what was their message? Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Now you can imagine the gospel as it's being heard and as people's lives are being changed, as the Spirit is really getting a hold of people, 
and believing, as Aaron said, that, that gospel, that truth has certain implications, doesn't it? Perhaps if Paul and the early Christians had gone into Ephesus and other parts of the ancient world and people just thought they were kooky, they could have just rolled their eyes and walked by them in the marketplace or wherever and not thought much of it. And we wouldn't be talking about it here this morning, but the Spirit was at work. Lives were being changed. People were hungry for this truth and people were believing. So it had implications. Jesus is Lord. The message itself can cause a stir, but especially so when it begins to hit the pride and the pocketbooks of those who are a part of that culture or that area. I was thinking this week, uh, every time I go on a road trip, you know, I I wasn't born in Dayton, but I I consider myself a, a Daytonian, I guess. I'm from this area. Every time I go on a road trip and I see a North Carolina license plate, You guys know what I'm talking about already, don't you? North Carolina, it says, and it has the right flyer. It says, first in flight. I just grit my teeth a little bit. They're taking credit for something. That's our thing. Just because they had softer ground or whatever, I don't know. But that's just a silly little example of how civic pride kind of functions within us. And it is, it's much more real and on a much larger scale here in Ephesus when, when people actually start believing that Jesus is Lord. The culture was questioned. The long-held beliefs were questioned. Not in an antagonistic way, but simply believing that Jesus is Lord will make you stop believing other things you have believed for a long time. So let's begin, uh, let's get through some of the passage this morning, starting again in Acts 19, verse 23. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together, along with the workers and related trades, and said, you know, my friends, that we receive good income from the business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is a danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited and the goddess herself who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world will be robbed of her divine majesty. You see, the message that Paul and the the early Christians were bringing was powerful. It was changing lives. It was having a real impact. This character, Demetrius, who we don't know a ton about, but we have enough background to know he would have been impacted as much as anyone. And he seems to be fairly well-spoken. He seems to be fairly well-connected, a leader in the area. But it began to hit that civic pride of the people. It began to hit their their pocketbooks, continuing on in verse 28. When they heard this, they were furious, and they began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. 
you can see that this Demetrius was, uh, he's not painted, I don't think, in, in this light where he's a, some kind of supervillain or he's a, a terrible person. You or I probably would have reacted the same way had Jesus come into our setting and started disrupting our life. But he knows exactly what to do to stoke the fire, doesn't he? He knows exactly how it's impacting him financially and those around him, but he knows how on a wider scale to get the city involved in the kind of resistance to this new message. It's the pocketbooks and the pride of the people. You can picture the scene as several people are gathered around and, and the noise starts to grow and the, you know, the pandemonium starts to grow a little bit and pretty soon they're walking through the town and other people are joining them. They seem to grab these two unsuspecting Christians along the way and drag them along and they march through town toward the theater. The theater in Ephesus is a Roman theater built into the side of a mountain that seats some 20,000 people. It's still there today. So the scene that we get is not just a handful of people who were, were mad, but by the time they reached that theater it had boiled over into some level of, of pandemonium. Verse 32. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another, and most of the people didn't even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front, and they shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people, but when they realized that he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison, for about two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Now Luke is an interesting person. He's a, a historian for sure. Um, so we have this kind of, this brief historical account of what's going on. And, and you might wonder, as, as I did when I first read it, what, what does this Alexander person have to do with anything? Why are the Jews trying to make a defense? And I think the clearest thing that I can say is, is that in the days of early Christianity, the line between Christian and Jew was very blurry at best. It perhaps is not like it is now, where we can understand a clear distinction, maybe with the exception of Messianic Jews or something like that. But certainly we see in the New Testament the, the struggle, you know, as as many, many Jews become Christians and accept Jesus as Messiah, are we supposed to stop? doing what we've always done? Are we supposed to give up those practices and the, the keeping of the law that we have done for years? I think the evidence we have is that most people became Christians that were Jews. They didn't stop being Jewish. They just accepted Jesus as the Messiah. But then you have the other side of the coin, right, where Gentiles, specifically because of Paul and his work, they started becoming Christians too. And the questions constantly come up, well, the, these new Gentiles, are they supposed to observe the Levitical law? Are they, are they supposed to observe the dietary law? Are they supposed to be circumcised? And that was the struggle. That was the question. That was the tension. And we get good answers to all those questions if we read the New Testament. But certainly to the people who were new Christians in the day, that line was a little blurry. It would have been even more so for the Ephesians. They didn't know there was a difference between someone who was a Jew and someone who was a Christian. So it, it seems as though the Jews who were in the area decided they had to distance themselves from this chaos. They had to make sure the Ephesians knew that it wasn't their doing that had caused all this. So they grab a, a, a person named Alexander. We don't know much about him, but he, he was their spokesperson. And they shoved him out in front of hundreds or perhaps thousands of people to make a defense and say, hey, listen, the Jews aren't responsible for this. What they're doing is not what we're doing. 
we don't like Paul as much as you don't like Paul. But you see, when the, when the Ephesians found out he was Jewish, they just shouted louder and longer than they had before. They weren't interested in hearing what he had to say. Let's finish out in verses 35 through 41. The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, Fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. They can press charges. If there is anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of what happened here today. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there is no reason for it. After he had said this, he dismissed the assembly. So we have again here the, a brief history of the riot in Ephesus. We have all kinds of characters introduced with great brevity. We have Demetrius and the craftsmen. We have Gaius and Aristarchus. We have the Jews. We have the crowd. We have Alexander and now the city clerk. And it's just like a dizzying amount of information jammed into one little section. The clerk finally steps forward. He seems like a cool and level-headed guy, a natural leader. And the clerk then would be the, the liaison between Rome and the Ephesians. The clerk knew that part of his responsibility was to ensure peace in the area. So he began to get worried. If news of this riot reaches the ears of Rome, they could come in anger and in force, and they could come down pretty hard on us. It wouldn't be good for anyone. So he steps forward, and much like Pilate, you can hear the echoes of, I find no fault with these people. He goes on to explain that they can take legal action if they so want. But, I mean, all this, I think, is an interesting story. I'm fascinated by the Bible, but sometimes I just, I get to the end of a little section. This section seems to kind of stand alone in a lot of ways. And I think, what do I do with this? What am I supposed to do with this? This is just like a, reading a history book or something, right? We have, to ask, we have to ask ourselves the question, why did Luke find it so necessary to tell us this story? What's important about it that we need to know and we need to apply to our lives? I mean, we, we look at this story and we see, I mean, there's no real preaching in it. We don't see any real conversions in it. We don't see any major character from the book of Acts show up. We don't see any overt move of the Spirit. We don't see any Christians dying for what they believe. We don't see any obvious miracle. So what do we do with it? I think the point that Luke is driving at is, is this. That the Christians, as they were going into these new places and sharing this truth, were doing so blamelessly. Now, I have to be honest with you, as I thought through this and processed this this week, that was hard for me to even write down. Luke wanted to show us that these Christians were blameless. They had broken no laws. 
They hadn't gone in with their signs saying, down with Artemis, Artemis is stupid. They hadn't gone from house to house grabbing up these little shrines that Demetrius made and smashing them. They hadn't gone in with this spirit of antagonism. We're right and you're wrong. They were blameless. But the reason I struggled with it is because I'm not sure that we're blameless anymore. I'm not sure that what Luke is trying to highlight here, the fact that the Christians were blameless, I'm not sure that we can say that of ourselves as Christians today. I think that's the point, though, isn't it? I think in some way that's what we have to take away. Early Christians, Luke goes out of his way several times in in the Acts and in his gospel. Early Christians were hated because of the message that they were bringing and because of its implications. But they weren't hated because of the way in which they were bringing it. Do you hear that? These Christians were hated. I mean, the gospel is is revolutionary. It changes lives. It changes places. The early Christians were despised and ridiculed and hated because of the gospel, but not because of how they were sharing it. I think there are still those today who despise the church. You wouldn't have to look very, very far or very hard to find out that that's the truth. But maybe we're not quite as blameless. Maybe some of that is justified. Anybody go to Wright State here? One, two, three, a bunch. Okay. So when I was at Wright State, yeah, sure. Okay. She said Wright State, wrong college. <laughs> when, I, when I went to Wright State, this is just a side note that popped into my head. When I went to Wright State, the motto was Wright State University, success within your reach. Have you ever heard that? I thought, man, that's the dumbest motto I've ever heard. It's like, even though you're dumb, you can do it. Um, <laughs> but when I, when I was at Wright State, we would go from class to class, from building to building, and there was a large quad in the middle of campus, and there were these preachers out there almost every day, almost every day, and they had loudspeakers, and they had big signs, and what would they do as, as kids walked from class to class? They would yell. They would say, you're a sinner, you're going to hell, and just yell and yell and yell, telling people how bad they were. You know, I I thought this week, I walked by them a dozen times, at least, I mean, dozens of times. And I, I can honestly say that I never really heard them say anything that was untrue. We are sinners. We are hopeless without Jesus. But man, was it the gospel? Or was it just the bad news? I don't remember ever thinking, that's good news. And I don't remember in my years at at Wright State, I don't remember anyone ever responding in a positive way to their message. Because it wasn't the good news It was a bunch of bad stuff, a bunch of negativity, a bunch of condemnation, a bunch of accusation, a bunch of denunciation, and just a little footnote that Jesus loves you and died for you. That's just not the good news, man. There was an English hymn writer in the 1800s 
named Frederick Faber, and he once wrote this. He, he once wrote, kindness has converted more sinners than zeal, eloquence, or learning. Amen. And I think that's true. I mean, we might add something to that. I think that's true, though. The gospel spoken in something that's not love is just not the gospel. We might go farther and say, kindness has converted more sinners than zeal, eloquence, or learning, but hatred and anger and condemnation and denunciation and accusation and indictment really haven't ever converted anyone. They probably have only served to drive a deeper wedge. I don't think it's our calling to denounce people. I don't think it's our our calling to constantly call out the sin in other people's lives. Why do we get confused when the world acts like the world? It's not our position or our calling to denounce people and accuse them. Really, I mean, you have to think about it this way. What has the devil made his primary work? It's just that kind of stuff. The name Satan is not really even a name at all. It's a title. It means the adversary. It means the accuser. The biblical portrait that we have is is Satan who is constantly reminding us of our failures and our flaws. He's constantly standing before the judge saying, you can't forgive her. Remember all that she's done. You can't forgive him. Remember how much he sinned against you. You can't forgive that person. They're still caught up in addiction. You can't forgive what does the judge say? Because of what Jesus did, their sin is forgiven. Their debt is paid in full. I will remember their sin no longer. Now, I think it's important to clarify, I don't want you to leave this place this morning thinking that I'm saying when you become a Christian, nothing changes because everything changes. I don't, I don't want you to leave this place thinking, uh, Chris said it was okay to worship idols this morning. You know, Chris said it's okay to keep doing all the same things we used to do in the same way that we used to do them. Will you stop worshiping idols when you become a Christian? You certainly will, but it's because you realize that Jesus is Lord. Will you start to question your your culture and your background and your upbringing? You will, because you realize that Jesus has made a way for you. You realize the heart of the gospel that Jesus came for you while you were still a sinner, sure, but he died for you. He paid that debt. Will you start spending your money differently like the people in Ephesus were? Sure you will. Because he will radicalize everything about you. Not in a bad way. Maybe radicalize is not the the, the greatest word. But everything about you will change. But listen, it's it's not in order to gain the favor of God. It's because you have the favor of God. You don't do all these things. You don't change your whole life so that you can be saved. You are saved, and then as a wonderful and inevitable byproduct of that, your whole life changes. You want to do everything different. You want to make Jesus happy. You want to follow Jesus. You want to tell other people about him. It's a byproduct of the salvation and not a means to attain it. 
I thought this week about that scene in the garden on the night Jesus was betrayed. Do you remember it? you remember the story? I'm sure you do. The plot was laid, and Jesus uh, was in the garden with his disciples, and Judas got the guards, the soldiers, if you will, made his way to the garden, and then they got there, and Judas kissed Jesus, letting the soldiers know which one he was, and they moved in to arrest him. What does Peter do? Peter grabs the nearest sword he could find, and he swings with all his might, thankfully missing his target and only cutting the ear off of one of the people. And Jesus, in love, immediately heals the man. We have to understand that when we pick up a sword, whether literal or figurative, in order to protect or promote Jesus, what are we really doing? We're going to end up just cutting the ears off of people. When you pick up a sword, whether it's a, a literal sword or whether it's a sword of anger or denunciation or accusation or indictment, and you start swinging it in order to protect or promote Jesus, all you're really going to do is cut the ears off of people that Jesus loves, people that really need to hear the gospel, the good news. This message has become much heavier than I anticipated it would be, and I apologize for that, but I'm trying to be faithful to what, what Luke is showing us here this morning. Um, a few years ago, I read a story that stuck with me ever since. The story was about an eye doctor in the late 1800s in England, and the eye doctor, he was a Christian, and he wanted to make an impact. He wanted to maybe, maybe we'd say be missional. And he wasn't really a professional Christian. He wasn't a seminarian. He was just an eye doctor that was a Christian and wanted to make a difference. He wanted to tell people about Jesus. So he thought, I read not long ago that people in China had little to no access to medical care. So he, he thought, what I'll do is I'll pack up my things and I'll, I'll go to China for a time and set up an eye clinic there and just welcome anyone who will come. You can come completely free for treatment. So that's what he did. He packed up his things. He got his gear. He got all his tools that he would need. And he, he went on the long journey to China. And when he got there, he set up the clinic and began to try and, and make connections with people and, and tell people that they could come. And it was a hard thing to do. Because even at that time, especially at that time, the world was much smaller and more segregated than it is now. So uh, obviously people were apprehensive the people in the area didn't really know what to make of this, this European gentleman who came into town offering services. So it was discouraging for a while, but eventually a family comes through. And they bring in um, an elderly man with them, and they say, this is our father. He hasn't been able to see for years. And we heard that you were here, and we thought, well, we don't have any other option. Maybe you can help him. So the eye doctor sets about doing his assess assessments and examinations and comes to the conclusion and the diagnosis that the man is just suffering from cataracts, pretty severe cataracts, but even treatable uh, in the late 1800s. 
So the eye doctor was able to remove the cataracts. The man regained his sight and was able to go on his way back to his village, which the story reads was over 100 miles away. Days passed, weeks passed, and didn't really have any, any more response. And then one day, as the eye doctor is sitting there, wondering if he made the right decision in coming at all, contemplating whether or not to pack everything back up and, and go back home, he looks out the bamboo window to see an unusual sight. And as he stands and moves, moves toward the window, he looks and looks, and it just seems like a long row of people just walking. And as they get nearer, he realizes something else that's kind of bizarre. They're all holding on to a rope. Must have been a pretty long rope because there were 48 people holding on to it. And as they get a little bit closer, the eye doctor makes the realization that the person at the front, the rope is tied around him. It's the same person whose cataracts he removed. You see, that man had gone back to his village and told everyone he could, I might not have the answer for you. I might not be able to heal you. I might not have everything you need, but you got to come with me. I found the person who does. Man, that's the kind of Christian I want to be. I think that's the kind of Christian we all want to be. So overwhelmed by the goodness of God and what he has done in his life that we will stop at nothing to go out and grab our ropes and bring everyone we can back to the fountain, back to the healer, back to the Lord, the way, the truth, the life, the one who can really make a difference. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we love you this morning. We thank you for your word and all that it means for us. Father, we thank you for such rich spiritual truths that even in this little section of history, we can, we can see and we can appreciate how early Christians didn't go into places with a sword. They didn't go in even antagonistically tearing down the beliefs of everyone else, but they simply went in and preached the truth. They simply went in and said, we found the answer. We know the way. We've experienced the love of Jesus and his, his salvation. So Father, help us this morning to remember this as we go on because, God, I know that sometimes the examples aren't as extreme as us going out, standing with megaphones and yelling at people, but sometimes, God, we are just prone to immediately be accusatory or to denounce others, or to, to focus on calling out their sin instead of pointing them to the cross. God, I love uh, this place, Apex. We love each other. We are blessed to be able to work together in this kingdom for you. We just pray that you give us reminders here and there through, throughout your word and throughout our journey together of how we can best do that, how we can do that in a way that most resembles what Jesus did for us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.